Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is The Guardian. After the circus of the last couple of days uh, and after the clear expression of the will of the Senate, why the coalition would want to continue to stand alongside the pharmacy lobby instead of alongside patients and try and scuttle this really important cost of living measure is beyond me. Hello, I'm Paul Karp, Guardian Australia's Chief Political Correspondent. Today, joining us in the podcave is the Minister for Health, Mark Butler. This week, the Coalition threatened to disallow Labor's 60-day dispensing changes, which allow patients to get two months of medicine for chronic conditions for the price of one. The opposition cited fears it will financially disadvantage community pharmacies and will be asking the Minister to respond to some of the fierce campaigning from the Pharmacy Guild. As well as talking about the medicine changes, which begin from the 1st of September, we'll also get an update on Butler's work cracking down on vapes and opening urgent care clinics. Welcome, Minister Butler. Hi, Paul. Now, for listeners who may not be familiar with the policy, let's go back to the start. What is 60-day dispensing? How does it save patients money? And does that saving come out of the pockets of community pharmacy? A lot of questions there. Um, Let's go back to the the baseline position. Australia generally has 30-day prescriptions. So you go to a doctor, the doctor will prescribe a medicine for whatever your condition is, and you go and get 30 days supply of medicine from your pharmacist. That reflects a time when people generally had one-off bouts of illness, so infectious disease, or they fell off a ladder and sprained their ankle or something like that. They went to a doctor, had a single episode of care, and were prescribed a single course of medicine. And 30-day scripts make a lot of sense for that world. Today's world is quite different. Um, And what we're trying to do is remake Medicare to reflect the fact that people tend to have chronic disease now, so ongoing disease that might last for the rest of their lives, certainly for years and decades. And we're trying to move Medicare from a system based around single episodes of care between a doctor and a patient to more continuous wraparound care by teams of primary care professionals, so doctors, nurses, allied health professionals. In medicines, it doesn't make sense for people who are on the same medicine year in, year out, decade in, decade out, or even for the rest of their lives, so for blood pressure, for high cholesterol, for chronic diabetes, and a range of other conditions, to have to go back to the pharmacist every month and to have to go back to the GP regularly to get a routine repeat script. That's why so many countries have moved to 60 or even 90-day scripts for these chronic conditions. So not for everything, but for chronic conditions. And that was the advice of the medicines experts who manage our pharmaceutical benefits scheme or PBS. That was the advice they gave to the former government five years ago. 
look, this is what European, North American countries do, the UK, New Zealand's done it for 20 years, we should do it here. And the former government decided not to proceed with that. We took a decision to do it. So now doctors from the 1st of September for the first tranche of 100 or so different medicines, and they'll be hypertension, blood, uh, high cholesterol, those sorts of things, <clears throat> doctors will be able to issue a script for 60 days. And you'll be able to take that script now to a chemist and get 60 days supply of medicines for the price of a single script. So effectively halving the cost of these medicines for those patients. We think about 6 million patients will be covered by this new system, get 60-day script. So it halves the cost of those of those medicines for them. But it also frees up millions of consults, millions of GP consults that we know are desperately needed out there for serious health condition. Currently, these consults are taken up with doctors issuing routine repeat scripts, uh, and they want those freed up so that they can actually care for patients who are having trouble getting into their rooms. That's why every doctor's group has supported this measure very, very strongly. They know it will be good for health, they know it would be good for clearing their waiting list. Now, pharmacists have warned that this could force them to raise prices for other services like filling Webster medicine packs. Is it fair enough that if you're asking them to do more to make up for the loss of dispensing fees, that there might be an impact on the price or quality of services that they offer? Businesses will make um, decisions on prices of various services they offer or retail products they offer that might mark up some of those retail products that are a big part of many chemist operations now. They'll do that. I mean, some of these suggestions have been, I think, self-serving. Some have been plain wrong. Uh, For example, earlier this week, there was a big scare campaign that the Pharmacy Guild ran through the Australian newspaper that aged care residents might be charged $800 a year for their Webster packs. So these are the the packages of tablets um, that ensure that people get the right medicine at the right dose at the right time. Very common in aged care facilities. They ignored the fact that um, aged care facilities are funded to do that work. Uh, to do the packaging of medicines. And there's a specific legal prohibition against charging aged care residents for it. So, you know, not only was it self-serving, it was frankly false. And I'm sure the Guild knew that. I'm sure the Coalition, well, they should have known that. And they proceeded with this scare campaign against older Australians nonetheless. I was particularly angry about that. So, look, the Guild is funded to do dose administration aids or Webster packs for other members of the community. They get paid for that. Uh, under the Community Pharmacy Agreement that they signed with the former government, Um, but they'll make decisions about how their businesses operate. What we're focused on is a proper arrangement for medicine prescriptions for people with ongoing health conditions, giving them that cost of living relief and giving that relief also to the health system to free up those millions of GP consults. This will have an impact on pharmacy businesses, but it shouldn't be overstated. An industry that earns about $100 billion dollars every four years, we'll lose $1 billion or a bit over $1 billion, so 1% of that revenue from the Commonwealth. Um, so we'll, we'll save $1.2 billion as a, as a Commonwealth government on behalf of taxpayers. But I've said that we would reinvest every single dollar of that into back into pharmacy. So effectively, it just goes back into pharmacy for other programs, expanding their ability to give vaccinations and a range of other things. They will also lose some income from customer fees, our estimate of that is it will be about $1.6 billion over the four years. So about 1.6% of their revenue. So not nothing, but, but the idea this is going to be cataclysmic for 
the pharmacy industry is frankly overblown. I said today they, they made this claim seven years ago when the former government made a you know relatively modest change to medicine pricing arrangements. They said hundreds of pharmacies would close. There'd be widespread job losses. They issued a report from Henry Ergas, who did a report for them again this year, and none of it happened. There was huge growth in the pharmacy sector after that. There's been 30% growth over the last four years. And the industry's own figures show that the average gross profit for pharmacies is 34% per year. There is not another part of the private medical services industry that earns a profit of 34%. So I'm not suggesting this is nothing in terms of the impact on revenue, but frankly, uh, this is a healthy, highly profitable, highly protected sector of the economy that I'm confident can, um, can adjust to this new arrangement and have a vibrant future. Now, the coalition asked for a pause on 60-day dispensing and you said no. Then on Thursday, the Senate voted down their disallowance motion. Will these changes now definitely take effect from the 1st of September? And what would happen if the coalition came back and tried the same thing again in the week of the 4th of September? Well, they will certainly take effect on the 1st of September. It's really gobsmacking to me that the coalition would continue to try to block access to these cheaper medicines for 6 million patients, but that's what they did on the Wednesday of the last parliamentary sitting week. So yesterday when we're recording this, along with Pauline Hanson, and today the Senate voted on that motion and majority of the Senate supported our measure. So it will go ahead on the 1st of September. Now, I understand that Anne Rustin, the Shadow Health Minister, is is intending to lodge another motion to try and block this again. That obviously can't be dealt with until after the measure has already taken effect. The legal chaos that that would unleash on thousands of general practices and pharmacies and more importantly, millions of patients really boggles the mind. After the circus of the last couple of days and after the clear expression of the will of the Senate, why the coalition would want to continue to stand alongside the pharmacy lobby instead of alongside patients and try and scuttle this really important cost of living measure is beyond me. You brought forward negotiations for the next community pharmacy agreement. How will that help uh, when the changes are going to go ahead on, on the 1st of September? Well, the pharmacy industry generally, so the Guild but other players in the pharmacy sector, said the new agreement doesn't take effect at the moment until after 2025. And there's a lot happening in the pharmacy industry. Obviously, there's there's what we've um, introduced by way of 60-day prescriptions for some medicine. But there's also a lot of movement in around what pharmacists are able to do in, by way of delivering services. So there are different pilots underway around the country around um, them doing more vaccinations, them potentially even prescribing medicines for urinary tract infections or the, the common contraceptive pill and things like that. There's a there's a comprehensive review of what we call scope of practice. So what nurses are allowed to do, what pharmacists are allowed to do, what paramedics are allowed to do those sorts of things. There's a comprehensive national review of all of that stuff happening over the course of this year and next. And so I think they said quite reasonably, look, let's bring forward the negotiation of the agreement so that there's you know, some certainty over the next few years about, about how those new arrangements roll out. And we said we're open to that. Uh, and so we agreed to bring forward the negotiations. 
One of the earliest claims the Pharmacy Guild made in their campaign was that this would exacerbate medicine shortages. Do you want to respond uh, to the claim that 60-day dispensing does that? And what are the real causes of those shortages? There have always been periodic shortages in some medicines. Going back, I mean, that they were aggravated during COVID. Supply lines were shut down during COVID, so we saw shortages of a whole range of things including some medicine. We rely upon a lot of overseas manufacturing for many of our medicines. Sometimes there is, you know, an an inevitable shortage that usually is part of a global shortage, so it's not just something that impacts Australians. But the idea that 60-day prescriptions would lead to more shortages doesn't really stand the test of any analysis. I mean, if you, for example, Paul, are on one of these medicines, you'll take 365 tablets during the year if you're good about taking your medicines. Yeah, you'll take 365 tablets a year whether um, you get 12 30-day scripts or whether you get six 60-day scripts. It won't change the amount of medicine that's going through the system. So the idea of a shortage just really doesn't stand up to any serious analysis. But it's also been rejected by the authorities that we have in place to manage medicine supply. You know, they, the advisory committee for the PBS, uh, they considered the claims, they rejected them outright. Other people who are expert in the area and have responsibility for managing medicine supply have also rejected the idea, the frankly pretty illogical idea, that providing the same amount of medicine through 60-day instead of 30-day scripts is somehow going to lead to a shortage. Is there an outlook for, you know, are those shortages improving though? They are, but some of them are subject to the shutdown of of supply lines and manufacturing during COVID. Some of them, as many of your listeners would know if they've been following this debate, are subject to stuff which is frankly out of all of our control. So some of your listeners might be familiar with the um, debate around Ozempic, which is a really important drug for diabetes. It um, it just exploded uh, after some coverage about what it might do for weight loss and so was being prescribed right around the world. This was not an Australian issue, right around the world for weight loss rather than for people who were needing it for diabetes, ongoing diabetes conditions. So there did end up a global shortage of Ozempic, which all countries were grappling with, which really worryingly started to impact the treatment of people with chronic diabetes. So we worked very closely with the TGA and no other the Americans, the Europeans were doing the same in their country. So there are some of these things that, that frankly are beyond the control of any single country, but then the Medicines Authority, in our case, the Therapeutic Goods Administration, will work very hard with the companies to try and relieve that shortage very, very quickly. So, for example, they've issued quite clear advice to doctors, um, really advising them that, that, that the supply we do have in this country of Ozempic, for example, needs to be prioritised for people with chronic diabetes rather than used off-label for people um, who have weight loss ambitions. Now, I think that, you know, there's obviously, we're going off on a tangent here, Paul, I'm sorry about this, but I mean, there's a lot of development now in research about about these medicines and what they can do for, for substantial weight loss. And I think we're all watching that closely. But right now, our priority is using that medicine for people with diabetes. A few months ago, you spoke to the National Press Club about your crackdown on vaping. How are discussions going with the states around legislation there? And when will we see those changes in effect? Well, they're going very well. There's a really strong consensus right across um, the country to take 
really clear and strong action to stamp out the recreational use of these vapes, which are so clearly targeted at our young people. And by that, I mean very young people in some cases, kids at primary school. Uh, We're working hard both across Commonwealth agencies, but also with our states to determine the best legal response. I mean, I think our preference would be uh, to be able to deal with this through Commonwealth legislation rather than every single jurisdiction having to go through a parliamentary process. That would be the quickest, more most efficient way. We're obviously having to work through those legal issues across agencies and across jurisdictions. I'm really pushing them though. I want to I want to be able to be very clear with the Australian people, with parents, with school communities uh, very soon about exactly what we're going to do to stamp this out. Already though, you'll see uh, in media reports that different states are already taking action to surge if you like, to surge their efforts in starting to shut down some of these operations that are so clearly marketed at kids. You know, some of these vape stores that are purposely opened up down the road from schools because they know that's their market. We've got more to do. You know, we've committed, very committed to uh, additional resourcing for the border force because we as the Commonwealth have to do what we can to shut these things down at the border. But also our health authorities like the TGA, equivalent health authorities at state level need to take action as well. But we're committed as a group of governments to doing that. I also wanted to get an update on the rollout of urgent care clinics. You've been chipped by the RMIT ABC promise tracker for not having them up and running at the start of this financial year. And there are also criticisms emerging that they're not open around the clock. Is that is that something that's going to improve in the near future? Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I've seen that fact checker, but but I could probably point to 30 to 40 different transcripts where I've said that they that these would be opened over the course of calendar 2023. Going back to the election campaign when we first announced it, I remember spending time with David Spears on Insiders on this, and I've repeated that over the course of the last 12 months. I think at the moment around 17 or 18 are open, but they're opening every few days at the moment, so I might have that figure wrong. It might be might be more than that. Uh, and we're very clear we're going to be able to open now more than 50 of these urgent care centres over the course of 2023. So they're not all open now, uh, but they are progressively being opened, as I've promised, consistently over the last 12 months. Some of them are not yet open the hours that we've we've indicated we need them to open, so which that's 8am till 10pm, seven days a week. But I think reasonable people understand that sometimes you can't just click new service on operating at full hours. I mean, hospitals are having trouble getting nurses and doctors. General practices are having trouble getting nurses and doctors. These urgent care services are not necessarily all able to switch on seven days a week what is that, 14 hours a day operations from day one. But they're all they're all committed and contracted to do that over time. And we're working with them on ways in which we can assist them with recruitment of workforce. The general feedback I'm getting from them, though, is there's real enthusiasm among doctors and nurses to work in these services. Like They're, they're seen as interesting, exciting work. And uh, even when they're in, you know, quite out of suburban areas or, or regional areas where there's often quite difficulty um, recruiting medical and nursing workforce, the providers are saying to me they've got a lot of interest. That might be all we have time for. Thank you for joining us, Minister Butler. Thanks, Paul. This episode was produced by Phoebe McElraith. The executive producer is Miles Martignoni. We'll be back next week for another episode of Australian Politics. Thanks for joining us.
Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. A third of students are less than happy about their university choice, new research by EY has revealed. The findings suggest that a digital rethink is essential to meet the expectations of students and staff. Universities can address this by putting the needs of the people they serve at the heart of their digital strategies. Learn more about the future of human-centered higher education at theguardian.com forward slash transforming higher education. This message was paid for by EY.